Hey family, welcome to We All Need Each Other, the podcast from Transformation Ministry. Let me tell you some facts. Each one of us has unique ways of thinking, gifts, talents, and experiences. Each one of us was made in the image of God. Although those things are very real and very true, it is also true that we reflect the image of God very differently. When we come together with our differences and our uniqueness, we can help each other. We can help each other understand different perspectives and broaden our own perspectives. We can help each other grow and learn and understand the beauty of God and also the complexity of this world. That's why we wanted to bring you this podcast. In this podcast, we're gonna get real. We're gonna bring in guests that talk about things like faith, race, politics, relationships, ministry, and justice. With all that being said, I just want to say thank you for being here. And thank you for joining us on We All Need Each Other. Well, Jamar, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for doing this uh, for us here at Transformation Ministries. We really appreciate it. I want to take a second just to introduce you to our people. A lot of them know you already, but uh, just as a reminder, so Jamar Tisby is the founder of the CEO, uh, a founder and CEO of The Witness Incorporated. Um, he's a writer. He's he's an author who has a best-selling New York Times best-selling book called Color of Compromise, and also has this new book. There it is, and this new book called How to Fight Racism. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that today. Uh, Jamar is also a preacher, a podcaster, a historian, and an activist. So, Jamar, those are the things you do, but can you tell us who are you? <laughs> I think um, it's a hard question to answer. Who, what, what is your human being, and not just your human doing? Mm-hmm. Um, man, I'm 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 a I'm a passionate guy. I follow uh, what I think is right, and even though the path is usually difficult, uh, oftentimes a circuitous route in life, it has never been dull. And it's always led me to meet great people and interact with great ministries like yours. That's cool. Um, so I want to say that you you may not know this, but you're also a mentor. Um, mm. I think you're a mentor to a lot of people, but I think of you as a mentor because um, you're a voice that I can just trust. Um, mm. You're a voice that always gives well thought out um, statements and opinions and perspectives. Um, I know for me, like I've, I've been working here at Transformation going on six years. And it, before that, I'll be, just be really honest. I didn't think about race much. I didn't have to. It just never really came up. And I know there's a lot of people around the country that are like that. Um, but early on, I found your podcast, Pass the Mic, and um, just been listening to you guys faithfully ever since. And the more I listen the more uh, I just trust your voice. And then with your other podcast footnotes and your book and everything, um, you speak in a way that lets me know that you're, you're, you're thinking about other people's perspectives mm. as you think. So I just want to thank you for that, for being a mentor mm. to me. And I also wonder, do you have anybody that you consider like a distant mentor, maybe someone that you don't have close relationships with, but you look at them as a mentor? 
Well, first of all, Dan, thank you so much for that. Very encouraging words, really answers to prayer. Um, yes, I mean, I learn from a lot of people. I have a lot of historical figures who I learn from. Uh, behind me are mm. Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, two civil rights activists. Ella Baker's career spanned something like 40 years, and she was involved in 30-plus different uh, civil rights organizations. Fannie Lou Hamer, of course, coming from the toughest of circumstances in the U.S. context as a poor black woman, mm -hmm. uh, but getting involved in activism and having really her faith at the forefront of that activism. But not just folks who are in black and white pictures. There are some folks who, who are still around today. Uh, who I count as uh, distant mentors. I learn a lot from um, watching how Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative maneuvers, uh, Bree Newsom, who took down the uh, Confederate flag in front of the State House in South Carolina after the Emanuel Nine massacre. She is incredibly sharp, incisive, and has a wonderful grasp of history. I learn a lot from Bernice King, the youngest daughter of MLK, who heads up the King Center in Atlanta. Um, there's a lot of political activists I look to. Um, the work of Stacey Abrams is just, you know, mind-blowing in its mm -hmm. effectiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber and uh, the Poor People's Campaign. I could go on and on, but yeah, I mean, we better be looking at other people and learning from other mm -hmm. folks, particularly uh, if you've been in sort of white Christian and evangelical circles, uh, learning from people who have been on the margins in some way, shape, or form, that'll be a lot of people of African descent and other people of color. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get I want to give uh, people who are watching or listening just a chance to get to know you a little bit better and just hear a little bit more of of your of who of who you are, um, how you how you've got to be where you're at. Um, so one thing that I thought of with you is that I see you all I see you all over the place on social media podcast, you know, you're writing, you're making appearances on, on shows and things like that. So you spend a lot of time informing and teaching and, um, you know, putting your perspective and your opinion out there. How do you also keep learning in the midst mm. of all that work that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, my first book, The Color of Compromise, was really um, the overflow of the learning that I was doing in my PhD program. So uh, in, a, in a history program, you've got two years of coursework where you're reading a book a week per class, plus mm -hmm. any other reading you need to do for your own research or whatever. So I'm reading literally dozens and dozens of books every semester on US history in my case. And so uh, you didn't have a choice there because you were getting graded. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I kept up my learning that way. Um, now it is, I am trying to offer uh, informed and historical perspectives on current events. So, mm -hmm. so that has my, my learning happening on two different levels. One, keeping up to date with what's happening in the world. And so mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a news junkie, um, probably to a fault, but I like to know what's happening. And I think especially, you know, in um, since 2016 presidential election, I think a lot of people have become a lot more engaged in terms of current events, particularly around politics. I was certainly one of those people and uh, it's kind of stuck. The other level I'm engaged in learning is um, reading history. And mm -hmm. so I'm 
subscribe to all the trade publications and all the academic presses. And when new books come out in my field, you know, my book, there is no book budget at this point. It's, it's a joke. I just, I have to get them. And so, um, I don't get to read nearly as much as I'd like. One of the things that I'm working on in this season is rhythms where I can fill up because so much is of me is, is pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. And, um, you know, hopefully it's it's helpful stuff, but I know it can be more helpful if I have a chance to um, fill up, mm-hmm. even simply intellectually. So that's that's a tension I have to nag- navigate. Yeah, and that's a good reminder too for the rest of us that, you know, uh, especially I think of the people who work here and who are volunteering their time here. A lot of them already have families, have full time jobs, and they feel like they're just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And you know, we try to encourage them to 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 not overdo it. And and to to yeah take the time to fill yourself up, but it can get it can get lost, right? You can right. if you're if you're one of those people who likes to pour out and likes to serve, it's easier to just keep serving and, until you're exhausted. Then you realize, oh man, I, I should have taken care of myself. So <laughs> exactly, that's a good reminder, really good reminder. So what's something that if you look around, obviously there's a there's a ton of stuff going on, a ton of issues at the forefront. But what's something about this unique time that we're in that really fascinates you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A couple of things. One, there is some continuity uh, with what we're seeing now, politically, socially, racially, and and what has come before. But what is entirely different, or or at least amplified, is the role of technology. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's 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 an entire field that that looks at how social media and internet uh, essentially radicalizes people, Hmm. um, but also on the flip side, mobilizes people for activism. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, uh, Twitter and and Facebook and Instagram and other platforms have really shifted the landscape of how we get news, how we consume news, how we share news, how misinformation spreads, all of that stuff. So that's one aspect that's quite interesting to me. The other aspect is throughout 2020, we had massive protests and uprisings um, for racial justice. Mm -hmm. These are numerically the biggest demonstrations we've had in US history. Um, They're even bigger than what we saw in the civil rights movement in the 50s Mm -hmm. and 60s. So it's a it's a, you know, my contention for months has been we're living in uh, the next era of the civil rights movement. Along with that, I am fascinated by who's participating. So it is certainly a multiracial and multi-ethnic coalition, even as many of these protests happen under the banner of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and are in protests of anti-Black police brutality. Mm. So, so it's a coalition of different kinds of people coming together in support of Black lives, which hasn't always been the case. It's very widespread, um, not just numerically, but also geographically, nationally and internationally. We saw protests arising and there's been some significant changes, I think, as a result of that, even sort of um, what people would call symbolic changes. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't discount because though these symbols um, tell a story, mm-hmm. uh, they tell a national story. So, for instance, um, the state flag of Mississippi was the last one to feature the Confederate battle flag emblem on the state flag. Mm-hmm. That flag has flown over Mississippi since 1894. Hmm. So 126 years until 
the summer of 2020 when legislators finally mustered the will to remove it and to vote on a new flag. Yes, it's a symbol. No, it doesn't change um, the day to day in the state of Mississippi, mm. but it does start to tell a new story and a new narrative, which I think is important too. I just wanted to pause right here and say thank you. Thank you for joining us and being here with us on the We All Need Each Other podcast. If you want to support us, please don't hesitate to stop by our website, www.transformation58.com slash give. Thanks. We all need each other. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I want to, I'm going to ask you questions that may not be directly out of the book, but I think you address all of these ideas in the book. And I just want to make a quick mention. I'm going to, I'm going to reference this for our people later, but I've got three copies right here. Ooh. I just got them in the mail today and I'm going to give those away later to some of our mentors. Three books. Uh, yeah. Just because we, I, we try to equip our people and I can't imagine a better thing to equip them with than because this book is really like a handbook. Like mm. it can really work as a handbook for, for a lot of us when we're trying to want figure out what we're going to do. So my first question is, is how do you, how do you decide what parts of the fight for racial justice to engage? And that's important for me because as someone who's pretty new to this in the last five or six years, thinking about this stuff, it can quickly get overwhelming um, when you start learning about all the different facets of it, you know, voter suppression and mass incarceration and historical things that have happened and wage gaps and all these things. And it's just, it can be like, you can feel like, oh my gosh, like I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. I don't know what area to focus on. So how would you recommend someone goes about kind of maybe not, I don't, I don't want to say like dismiss parts of it, but I want to say like figure out your capacity and, and focus on certain things. Yeah. Well, in the book, I left out much more than I put in just because of space, right? Mm -hmm. there, the, you, you can write volumes on any one of these areas of uh, fighting racism. So what I chose to include had a lot to do with um, my experience, what I've been exposed to, what I've studied, what I knew about. I've lived in this black body my whole life. And mm -hmm. so uh, from that perspective, I have a lifetime of experience to draw on. I was an educator in the Mississippi Delta area on the Arkansas side mm -hmm. in a very, very high poverty uh, community and saw all of those issues related to generational poverty from food deserts to mass incarceration to underemployment and um, underinvestment in education. So those things intersected with my life and my professional life. Um, I've also been around a lot of white Christians and experienced all of the ups and downs, the pushback and the opposition to discussing topics of race and actually doing stuff about racism. So some of it draws on that experience. As a reader, when you go through the book, I would say two things. Uh, number one, if at all possible, do it in community. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just one other person you're going through it with, it, it will yield immensely more insights when you're doing this in dialogue. Mm -hmm. 
with someone else who's who's um, concerned about racial justice. The second thing I say is there's no prescription. There's plenty of work to be done. So do what resonates with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you happen to live in the southwestern portion of the United States, immigration issues would mm-hmm. be very prevalent. If you, like me, are in the deep south, um, you may be looking at voting rights and voter suppression. Uh, that's really a national problem, but um, historically, it certainly had highlight reels down in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on where you are socially and, and geographically, but also I believe the Lord is going to put on your heart a particular burden for for some area where you are well positioned to to move the needle on racial justice. And it may take a while. One recommendation that I've heard for discerning your vocation, figuring out what you're going to do in life, what you're going to be when you grow up, is try everything and see what sticks. Mm. So you might want to try a lot of different things mm-hmm. and see, you know, what what aspect of fighting racism is really the one that kind of makes your heart sing, mm-hmm. makes you passionate about it, and that you can see yourself doing. The last thing I'll say is doesn't have to be one thing forever mm-hmm. so it could be something right now at the beginning of 2021 it might be something different a year from now or even six months from now depending on situations so mm-hmm. don't feel like it's this one-time decision that mm-hmm. you can never um change or shift or pivot right right um so a lot of people i mean we all know the phrase that actions speak louder than words um but I think you're an interesting example because I obviously I don't know what your activist um, practices are other than what you put out on social media, through writing, things like that. So how do you, okay, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase the question, but how do you decide when to act and when to, when to pull back, but also what's the value? How do you, how do you weigh the importance of actually getting out and doing active work. So like protesting and, or working uh, on a, on a political campaign or something like that Um, compared with what you do, um, what we all see you do at least, which is a bit more, like I said before, informative and you're, you're writing and you're recording and, and these things that maybe not are out in the trenches, so to speak, but are super important. Um, so I don't know. Was that question yep. clear? Yep, definitely. Okay. It's an important one. So I structure the book around uh, a model I've been developing called the Arc of Racial Justice. Mm-hmm. It's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. Um, awareness, that's just building the our knowledge base, the mm-hmm. data, the information that we need to understand race and racism. Relationships is gets at the idea that all, uh, all reconciliation is relational mm-hmm. at some point that this is about human beings, it's about loving neighbors, Mm -hmm. and um, the intentional effort that we have to make to develop deep and authentic relationships, especially with people who are different from ourselves. And then the commitment aspect gets to the fact that um, prejudice works through more than just people, it works through policy too, Mm -hmm. that we have to work on a legal level, a systemic level, an institutional level to change our practices to be more equitable. So, I say all that because each of those areas, awareness, relationships, commitment, is entails action. You know, mm-hmm. me building my awareness or 
um, in my case, uh, uh, disseminating information to help others build their awareness, that is an action. Mm. But I think the arc of racial justice is helpful so that we don't get stuck thinking that just our one preferred or current way of acting is the only or the main way. And so um, it comes in seasons. I'm primarily an educator right now in various ways, whether speaking or writing or uh, what have you. But I've also been on the front lines as a teacher in a low income area, which is, as you know, much more than just what happens in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's uh, picking kids up or, or, or dropping them off if their parents don't have transportation. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, helping them find clothes for dress up day. It is uh, counseling them if they've come in from a rough night or morning. All of that stuff felt very on the front lines and it was very all-consuming so those folks who who are working is sort of uh in the day-to-day don't often have a whole ton of capacity or bandwidth to um generate knowledge or Mm -hmm. to to sit down with a book and just think about it because there's Mm -hmm. there's stuff always happening um at the same time i am a leader in my church Mm -hmm. which uh puts me into relationships with people very unlike myself, people who vote differently, hmm. people who grew up in the South, people who are white, um, you name it, in, in, in virtually every earthly way, they're different from me. Hmm. And trying to be an authentic, meaningful relationship, because we can have lots of you know, superficial interactions with hmm. folks where we don't get into stuff that really matters, and we think we have a better relationship than we do. But I think a lot of people right now in the past couple of years have realized um, just how fragile those relationships are. Cause mm-hmm. when they start to really talk about matters that count, there's some big differences there that they perhaps weren't aware of before. And um, doesn't look like they're going to be able to, to work through and maintain as close a relationship now. Hmm. So that is, um, that's work. That's fighting racism. That's frontline stuff. We, hmm. need to, we need to have a really capacious vision of what it means to fight racism without ever becoming complacent that hmm. what we're doing now is all there is to be done. We need to be constantly pushing and stretching and working in community to um, hone our practice and to, and to go even further than we already have. Hmm. That's a really good reminder. Uh, obviously, our, our culture and our society um, measures things a lot on productivity and what, you know, what do you produce? What's the measurable thing that you produced? But there's a ton of value in the things that you can't measure. The, like you said, the relationships, the knowledge that you're gaining, um, those little things that, you know, you may say a kind word to somebody that, that changes their whole day. Mm-hmm. Um, little things like that that aren't measurable, uh, but that's really good. That I feel like you're giving us permission uh, to not have to be productive and produce results every day. We should produce right. some results, but it's not yeah. just that. We so. have to we have to sort of um, have a have a really expansive vision that most of the time when people think of actively fighting racism, they literally think of a march. You know, mm-hmm. they literally think of some big protest with thousands of people Mm -hmm. which that can't be the case because if that's the case then you know it only happens once every couple of years or a couple of months or something Mm -hmm. Uh, but the reality is people are fighting racism 
all day, every day in all kinds of ways, whether that's through an organization. One of the things that I hope is contributing to this battle is um, being the founder and one of the leaders at The Witness, which is a Black-led Christian organization. And so what we're trying to do is um, generate content knowledge through the Black Christian Collective, our multimedia division. Mm -hmm. uh, we're writing blog posts and articles. We're featuring poems and artists. We're doing podcasts and events uh, because we want to express ourselves, the fullness of ourselves mm -hmm. as both Black and Christian without, quote unquote, the white gaze. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're writing or um, working with a predominantly white organization, especially if it's Christian, we're often having to sort of filter ourselves and modulate uh, our, our, our content to, to fit the, the white sensibilities there. Mm -hmm. So now we have the freedom to really say what we think we need to say. Our other division is the Witness Foundation, mm -hmm. which is our philanthropic arm. And what we do there is identify, train, and fund the next generation of Black civil rights leaders. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, our initial cohort, um, which will launch summer 21, is going to be five black Christian leaders who are already involved in justice work in various fields. And what we want to do is simply accelerate their impact through a transformative grant of $50,000 apiece for each, each for two years. So a total of $100,000 investment. And we wanted to say, look, you've done a lot with a little. Here's some more resources and, mm -hmm. and just run. Uh, and in so doing, what we're what we're hoping to do is help to change the um, racial justice landscape of philanthropy itself hmm. to be more equitable, to to see funds, especially transformative amounts like we're talking mm -hmm. about, get into the hands of black people and people of color who are already doing great work. So that's sort of on a systemic and institutional level. Not everyone has to do that, but you can support, you know, organizations like The Witness or other Black-led organizations as part of your commitment to policy and, and institutional change. Yeah, I love that so much. I was I was planning to ask you about The Witness Foundation later, but that that's so good. That To me, that's one of the most exciting things that I've seen you guys doing, um, mostly because, you know, here at Transformation, we work with uh, students, mostly African-American students, and you, it doesn't take you too long to realize that a lot of them don't have the same opportunities that even I, I didn't grow up r really wealthy or I was, I was middle-class rural. Um, but, but I had so many opportunities mm. and there's so many things that I took for granted that, that a lot of the, the students that we work with are can't even imagine. Right. And so to see you uh, and your organization working hard to provide opportunities is amazing and and to know that we can be a part of that so i want to put the i want to put the the website in the show notes what's the what's the website that we can give to yes so so we are currently in the midst of our first official fundraiser it's called the will you be a witness campaign and it's saying that in this modern day civil rights movement in this current era of racial justice will you be a witness will you be a witness to um, truth? Will you be a witness to your faith? And will you be a witness to racial justice in this moment? So if you want to stand up and be counted, if you want to be a witness, go to thewitnessinc.com, thewitnessinc.com. You can make an unrestricted donation that will go to the organization as a whole, or you can designate uh, it, whether it goes to the BCC or to the foundation. Hey, sorry to interrupt. 
But if you're loving this episode and you want to access any past episodes or show notes or more content, visit our website, www.transformation58.com slash podcast. Okay, get back to the show. I have to admit to you, I, I, I had to cram to get through this book and I'm not a fast reader. Uh, I just got my copy on January 11th and I just finished it today. Um, I'm, I'm really a slow reader. I, I take my time and it helps me digest things, but I wanted to get through it before I talk with you. And I was, a, I was gonna say that the last chapter was my favorite part of the book, but then I got to the conclusion, which <laughs> I almost skipped the conclusion. Cause I was like, oh no, I read the whole, I read all the chapters. He won't know if I read, if I didn't read the conclusion, <laughs> but you said some stuff in the conclusion that just like, it, it was so heartfelt and so, mm. um, it just really connected with with a lot of the things that I've been feeling. Now, I'm sure I didn't feel them in the same way you did. Uh, mm-hmm. We're very different. Uh, our journeys have been very different. But um, one thing you said is fighting racism, racism is not just about how it changes the world, but also about how it changes you. Yeah. And you, you mentioned a, several aspects of what that means. And uh, I just wonder if you could give us kind of a testimony of of how it's changed you and what you've learned about yourself through this process. Mm -hmm. Dan, I think that's such an important point you bring up. The longer I do this work, the more I realize that oftentimes we are trying to measure the success of a movement, back to what we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those external measures are, you know, quantifiable. What laws did we change? How many people did we recruit to the mission? How much money did we raise? All those are important. And I hope they're moving in a positive direction. But at the same time, I think a lot of people get discouraged because if those are kind of your only measures, um, if those are your only metrics, then uh, the hard, slow work of fighting racism is going to eventually be demoralizing. Mm And you might get paralyzed because it's it's we're dealing from a spiritual perspective with powers and principalities. We're dealing with generations long belief systems that we're trying to change. Um, there's not typically going to be very quick movement or change on the mm-hmm. racial justice front. So what keeps you going? Um, a lot of things, but one of them is understanding that this effort is good for your soul the way God has set this thing up is that when you engage in justice, it changes you. Mm. It refines you. It, it, for me, um, a lot of people think I'm courageous because I speak what I think is truth. I try to do so in love. I'm not always successful, but, um, I never would have described myself that way until I got involved in this work. Hmm. Uh, So you find in yourself reservoirs of courage once you start to to take those steps. Um, It's also been humbling because you find out A, how little you know, and B, how little power you have, Mm -hmm. Um, but in a good way. So for me to to find out how little I know means I need to trust and rely on other people, other activists, other scholars, other Christians mm-hmm. to help um, round out my knowledge and to be strong where I'm not. Uh, 
and it's also in a good way to realize that we do have agency. We can impact the world for good, mm -hmm. but we don't have all power. And that helps us figure out, well, what's my lane? What is my gifting? How can I steward everything I have to my utmost ability, but also rest in the fact that not only can't I do it all, it's not all for me to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this, is, this is the work of the entire church. This is the work of the entire community as it comes to, you know, cities and states and nations. So, you know, we can, we can give ourselves a little bit of a break that we don't have to change the world on our own, that we can do what we've been called to do uniquely and specifically, and that's enough. Mm -hmm. And these are, these are simply realities that you don't fully realize until you're doing the work. Mm -hmm. And so for those who are sort of hesitant, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and it's resonated at all, you've probably taken some initial steps. You've certainly been building your awareness about race and racism. You've probably been realizing some things that you have to reevaluate, whether that's your faith community, the theology that you believed, the people that you followed or looked to as leaders, et cetera. But you know there's another step, you know there's deeper, you know there's further to go, and you're probably feeling a little bit of trepidation, which is certainly understandable. Um, if this was easy, everybody'd do it, mm -hmm. but it's not, and very few people do it. I can't take the fear away. That's always going to be there. What I can say is that you learn to live with the fear and work through it mm. and take action in the midst of it. And as you do that, um, the promise that I remind you of, which is the promise of Jesus, is that um, Jesus is with us, that his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us, mm. that whenever Jesus prophesies persecution, Jesus always promises his presence as well. And so even though we go through suffering for the sake of righteousness, um, when we do that, we're following the path of Jesus and he's not far away in the midst of it. That is such an important man. Uh, we probably, that's probably what we should have ended on, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take my full time that I have. Yes. But that's you. such an important word, Jamar, because I, I feel like the longer I do this and because of my unique like positioning um, and the way I grew up and where I work now and my experiences, I feel really passionate about like sharing what I'm learning with, with people who haven't started learning those things yet, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's scary. It's scary yeah. for me, first of all, to, to be the voice that, because that's not, that's not kind of my like natural disposition like i'm more like keep me behind the scenes let me do the grunt work and i'll get things done mm. so even doing this podcast mm. these kind of interviews is is evidence that that god is revealing things and, and pushing me into things that i didn't know that i that i could do and i don't necessarily always want to do um but also you're right i think i think there's that hesitancy and i've talked with this about several people like where's the hesitancy come from? And sometimes I, I really think that people don't want to take a hard look at themselves. Mm. And I totally get that. It's never mm. fun to have to look at yourself in the mirror and see the, the blemishes and, and the yeah. faults. But I think there's a ton of beauty and a ton of value in doing that. Mm. 
Yes. And, and you, you mentioned that in the, in the chapter, like you've learned things about yourself and you said, you even pointed out some of the negative things about yourself that, that you, you wouldn't have found out without this process. And so, yeah, I, I thank you for that encouraging word. And I hope that people are hearing this and saying, okay, I, I think it's time for me to take that next step. And even though it's scary, Jamar told me it's going to be worth it. <laughs> it's absolutely going to be worth it. And, and I wouldn't feel too afraid either of um, taking that good, hard look at yourself in the sense that I wrote about this in my first book, The Color of Compromise. I believe it's 2 Corinthians 7. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and they are, they are in some kind of error. And Paul writes them a letter pointing that out. Um, and in his follow-up letter, he said he was he was worried. He was worried that in speaking the truth in love, but a hard truth, that the Corinthians would turn away from him, not want to listen to him anymore, mm. persist in their rebellion. But he was overjoyed because uh, they exhibited what he called a godly grief, godly grief. And he said that the difference between worldly grief and godly grief is that worldly grief leaves you in despair. Godly grief uh, leads you to repentance. Mm. And mm -hmm. so as we take that good hard look at ourselves, how we've been in many cases complicit with racism and white supremacy, sometimes unbeknownst to ourselves, but no less um, um, a burden and uh, a painful to people of color and black people, as we, as we turn that lens on ourselves, I pray that we would experience that sense of godly grief, mm -hmm. that that grief that grieves God, you know, the grief over injustice, the grief over dehumanization, over offending the image of God in other human beings, but the kind of grief that says, I want to turn away from that, hmm. repent and head in a different direction. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Jamar. Um, he's one of my favorite and most trusted voices in the in the conversation around racial justice. And I want to get his book uh, into your hands. So I've got three copies of this book that I want to give away. And I want to give it to people who are currently serving as mentors in our ISI program. So if that's you, um, all you have to do is email me with something that you heard in this conversation that, that uh, was important to you, that stuck out to you, that meant something to you. And let me know what that was and send it to my email. It's danweiss at transformation58.com. The first three that do that will get a copy of How to Fight Racism by Jamar Tisby. Good luck. Let me get one more question that's, that's specifically meant to kind of equip some of our mentors and us here on staff as well. So we have a group of, uh, of a multiracial group that is, is kind of leading our programs here. And we do, we do one-on-one -on -one mentoring at Transformation, which is a little bit unique, but it, it also requires that we have a larger group of, of volunteers that are, that are working here. And we've, we've taken some steps to kind of uh, add people of color because we, we know that's important to, for our students to have more people that look like them that they can look up to. But we don't want it to, obviously, we don't want to go all the way and say only people of color can be mentors. So we're still a majority white group of, of leaders. So as a majority white group of leaders, that's working with a majority of, of students of color. What are some what are some blind spots that we should kind of be on the lookout for as as we're approaching the way we do our work? Are the majority of the students you work with black students? Are they Latino students? Majority black, a few other um, 
uh, racial categories. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm sure you've already done a, a good job covering a lot of this. I'll draw on my experience as a middle school principal where we had a lot of young white teachers coming in and working with um, all black students, basically. Um, there was no lack of goodwill. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted to do good and everybody wanted to do the right thing. I, I, I always reminded new teachers who were white, especially, that there's a long history of racism in this country. And even when you're working with young people, it's a message that you get very early that this country treats you differently because of how you look. And so there's going to, it's going to take some time to build up trust with the folks you're working with. Mm -hmm. And um, there may be some hesitancy specifically because you're white mm -hmm. and not to take offense at that because mm -hmm. honestly, unfortunately, it's well justified. Mm -hmm. uh, we have mm -hmm. a lot of history there that says we need to be careful around white mm -hmm. folks. And um, don't take it personally, you know, that's, that's just the broader reality that we're dealing with. And um, your presence, more than anything, is probably is what's going to build up trust. So if you can be mm -hmm. consistent in that role, showing up each time every time it's predictable they they'll learn to count on you the second thing is it's not insurmountable this this racial difference at all um students and young people can sense your love your care your respect if if that is there your race will always be a factor, but it doesn't have to be a factor that prevents you from developing close and, and healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I'll say is silence often speaks louder than words in, in the negative sense. So when mm -hmm. stuff is happening, right? Like for me, some of the most devastating moments in um, you know church on Sunday is when there'd be you know yet yet another cell phone video of an unarmed black person getting killed and there was no mention of it from our church leaders right so mm -hmm. so what are those events whether they're national news events or, or in the local community that all your students are going to know about all your students are going to feel some type of way even if they can't sort of verbalize or articulate it and us not saying something or at least acknowledging it communicates a lot communicates that a you're not plugged into my world b you're not prioritizing you know what is of concern to me mm -hmm. so so you know not being afraid even if it's just in passing to say hey i know this thing happened um if you need to talk or want to talk want to process it i'm open to that mm -hmm. there's there's so much more um i think for me even as a black person but as a you know relatively well-educated black person coming to a, a low wealth area there's always the sense as much intellectually as you try to tamp it down there's always the sense that you've got something for them mm -hmm. <laughs> you know even if it's not quite a savior mentality you've got the assets and they have the deficits mm -hmm. i mean that fundamentally has to shift mm -hmm. So for me, it's it's been years of living in the Delta, a place that financially is one of the poorest places in the country because of racism and white supremacy, uh, not because of a lack of hard work or ingenuity on the people here. Um, 
it's taken me years in the Delta to say that they have incredible assets here in ways that we may not measure in broader society. So it's not a ton of fancy jobs. This is not like a Silicon Valley. This is not um, a place where, you know, people by and large have huge, huge houses, unless you're part of this small minority of wealthy people. But it is a place of great wealth in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationships here are incredible. They are strong they transcend a a nuclear family they encompass Mm -hmm. an entire community they they are even um encompassing generations and and chronologically uh there's an incredible music and food culture here that is unparalleled Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a history here that is so powerful it's changed my life just being exposed to it Mm -hmm. the geography in this place the sunsets are gorgeous the the cotton fields i literally live in cotton country are Mm. haunting and terrifying and and beautiful all at once so learning to to see that the people you're serving can also serve you Mm. because they have so much to offer if if we'll but have eyes to see it yeah that's beautiful and so much of what you just said about the delta is how I've come to feel about South Bend mm. minus the geography. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, Indiana's flat uh, and, it's, and, and it's winter yes. now. So I'm, <laughs> I'm under this permanent cloud of grayness, but, yes. but the beauty, the beauty in South Bend is, is amazing. And that's another one of my passions is just to, to show people that everything they've heard bad about South Bend doesn't have to, th- that's not always true. That's not all there is about South Bend. Um, and so I, I, again, really good reminders. And I I know that the people listening, the people who are involved here will really benefit from hearing what you had to say. And so thanks for your time. This is amazing. I, I didn't honestly know if you would, if you would accept the invitation. So I feel really honored that you took the time to be with us. Yeah. 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 I enjoyed uh, uh, being able to to visit you all in the pre-pandemic times. Really <laughs> appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, the hospitality that you showed me. So it's really a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Jamar. Appreciate it. Thank you. So focused on improving. If you in front of God, boy, you might as well quit moving. If you call in the plays, I can guarantee you losing. Winning without a mission impossible, won't spend no time cruising. Ha-ha. Sometimes what you gotta do is wait for a minute. Be patient with what you're facing. Can't be late if you're with them. Those marks, you gon' hit them. Those grades, you gon' get them. And the devil capitalize on clout chasing if you let them.